Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometime this year, the winner is going to be unveiled. There will be chest thumping and back slapping and smug looks, maybe partying in the streets. There will also be angry people on the losing end, as there always are. But when Amazon does the big reveal and announces the location of its second headquarters, the question of who the real winners and losers are might not be nearly as clear as the headlines suggest. Because remember, to woo Amazon, cities have offered up billions of dollars in tax incentives and free workforce training and all sorts of other perks. Bloomington, Minnesota suggested building a monorail. Stonecrest, Georgia said it would rename itself to Amazon, Georgia. Boy, I've never seen anything like this. You know, it's a reality show with, you know, 238 contestants. Nathan Jensen is a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin, and he says it's important to remember that this is not just a story about Amazon. He's originally from Wisconsin, which has been aggressive about giving incentives to paper products manufacturer Kimberly Clark in a bid to save 600 jobs. And it has put billions on the table for the Taiwanese manufacturer Foxconn. And Wisconsin's actually in a very difficult position right now that there's a declining funding for education. The UW, University of Wisconsin system, is under fire. Some of the liberal arts majors are being canceled at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. So you see this state that, I mean, literally struggling with education financing, which is one of the clear benefits of why you would want to go to Wisconsin in the first place. At the same time, you know, subsidizing Foxconn, which was $3 billion, but the estimates are now about $4.5 billion um, in subsidies for Foxconn. Jensen is a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He has studied what happens when companies are offered lavish packages to come to town. It's what he calls the winner's curse, which Jensen explains this way. Well, I think the best example are the Winter Olympics, that mm-hmm. if you, you can attract the Olympics with enough money in small town in Russia, for example, with enough billions of incentives, but it's not clear that that's a good economic development strategy. So on, on one hand, you know, the question of any of these incentive offers, are they actually coming because of the incentives? Or are they coming because of the workforce, the location, the quality of the existing infrastructure? So you might be giving money for something that's coming anyways. And then the second part is just the costs are enormous. And often there's tax incentives. So you're basically cannibalizing your future tax base. Mm. At the time where you have workers moving into town, you have expansion demands and the schools are going up at the same time. It's difficult to finance it. So what you're saying is like, you're like, gee, we've got all these new workers. We need another elementary school. Um, or there's so many people stressing the roads, we got to fill in some more potholes or reinforce that bridge because it's kind of a mess. And that company, call it Amazon, but this can be true of other companies too, like they're not paying very many taxes. So you can't use their taxes to build the elementary school or rebuild the bridge. I think that's exactly it. And and often these incentive programs, the biggest critics are school districts or education associations that hmm. they see that this really does cannibalize often because it's the local taxes that are being abated, which go to the schools at the time when there's an increasing demand for, again, building schools, more teachers. This is one of the big opponents of many of these incentive programs. Can you give an example of a city, a state that offered an incentive to a company to come and then kind of as you were talking about before, winning and somehow turned into uh, losing in a sense? 
Yeah, there's a there's a few stories in North uh, in North Carolina, a small um, city that attracted, um, I, I believe it was Amazon data center. And this data center, you know, was the promise of generating jobs and capital mm-hmm. investment. But, you know, for the most part, these data centers, I mean, their capital investment, it sounds great, but it's just servers sitting on a piece of land. It's not really generating any other economic development. Most of the engineers are flying in from, you know, the headquarters or from other parts of the country. Hmm. There's not that many jobs being created. So you're kind of carving out this in the middle of nowhere a data center that has really very little positive impact. But then there's some demands for more power, for more water. Um, and it's one of these classic examples that, boy, it, it sure doesn't seem to have had any positive impact on economic development. There's also stories um, like Discovery Communications in Silver Spring, Maryland. They've just decided to move their company. So you also you know, have these investments in incentives with this belief that in the long run it'll pay out. For these companies, you know, many companies go bankrupt, many companies change their strategies, they move. So if you're banking on a return 25 years down the road, and this is one of the Texas Economic Development Programs, they want to make sure it pays back within 25 years, that's a pretty long time horizon just at upfront to figure out whether or not it makes sense. I have a newborn, a seven-month, uh, eight-month-old little daughter, so it's like She'll graduate college and finish law school and we'll <laughs> right, finally right, right. be breaking even. Right. That's a long time horizon. When were you saying about Discovery that they moved to Silver Spring? Like they got incentives, but now they're leaving? Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's quite a few of these examples. There's a bunch of really negative examples in the Kansas City area where often called the Kansas City Border War, where companies move back and forth across the Kansas and Missouri border. And they're counted as a new investment, even though... The workers probably aren't moving. There's no real change in impact in Kansas. You know, you move four miles one direction, sure, you cross the border. Right. But it's not going to clearly have any other different economic impact. So then Kansas City is a pretty clear example of, you know, just shifting back and forth, just companies maximizing their their tax benefits. I want to stay on that for a minute because you do talk in your book about this war between Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, which, as you say, close together. But there's this huge, at least there was this huge sort of war over like uh, throwing incentives at companies to get them to move from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City. And you tell the story of Applebee's. Uh, Do you want to tell like what happened with Applebee's, the corporate headquarters of Applebee's? You know, in some sense, you, there's a lot of finger pointing in Missouri and Kansas. Who started it? Um, you often hear them talk to each other like it's World War One. They talk about <laughs> we'll disarm if you disarm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Applebee's moving across the border and then moving back, right. getting new incentives for a small, you know, twenty mile move. I don't, I don't remember the exact distance, but you know, we've seen quite a bit of that. And and there's a foundation in the Kansas City area. This Hallmark is one of the big companies, the Hall Family Foundation, where they've documented the amount of companies that have gone back and forth hmm. across the border. And, and the net impact is basically just shifting the deck chairs around, right. but no real new economic development. Right, right. And and the amazing thing about Applebee's, I'll just say, is they made a move uh, from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City, got a cash in all these incentives, and then not that long later, they cut a whole bunch of jobs and moved to like basically the L.A. area. Yeah, like yeah. they were like, I mean, "Thank you very much for your money," and now we're moving. 
You know, and that tells you something about these firm strategies. I mean, their location decisions actually aren't all about the incentives. Of course, if you're in the Kansas City area, you can play this game shifting back and forth across the border. There's some economic development consultants that'll look for lease expiration. So your lease is expiring in Kansas City, Kansas. We'll call you up and say, you can move to Kansas City, Missouri, and we can get you incentives. You know, we'll take a third of them, but you'll get the other two thirds. But in Applebee's case, they were consolidating their national operations, and it made economic sense for them to move to California. So despite all these kind of lucrative incentives, when it really became a business case, they moved to the L.A. area. And I think this is the other great example that often these big incentives, even when they're really, really large, they're nothing compared to the geographic reasons to, to locate somewhere, the human capital reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in some sense, we're playing this really expensive game that might not really even shift that much investment. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nathan Jensen, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. Can you possibly take politics out of it and like align the incentives of the politicians and the public? Because right now, politicians generally stay in office like four years, eight years, maybe 12 years. That's not very long. Whereas the public may live in, you know, Wisconsin or wherever for a long time. Um, they have to deal with things 20 years down the road. Is there any way to, like, align those incentives or, or just take politics out of it completely? I mean, the United States is interesting because many other countries offer their incentives at the national level. Okay. So you don't see this competition locally. And then in many countries in Europe in particular, the European Union limits the amount of state aid that can be provided. So there's in some places there's limitations mm-hmm. knowing that politicians are going to want to do this. But after that, it's difficult to see exactly why a um, politician would give up this lever. Because for the most part, although sometimes when the scale gets so large, there's a backlash, but the smaller incentives, voters seem to think that they're pivotal in attracting companies. So politician offers an incentive, a company comes, they have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and they take credit for it. So the political incentives aren't just the time horizon. Um, It's the idea that you need something really public that shows you're generating jobs, and there's nothing really more public than this. Right, and they're responding. You're saying politicians are doing this because they're responding to what voters want. And that's what we, we talk about pandering in our book, that voters think these things matter, Mm -hmm. and in some sense that makes them more willing, at least without any context, when they don't think about the trade-offs. If you actually talk about the trade-offs in education funding, whoa, voters start to shift more and saying maybe these incentive programs aren't a good thing. But if you can control the rhetoric, yeah, they're pretty popular. Right. Is there a way of crafting bids that is fairer, that results in something better, that does not result in no taxes coming into the city, that sort of thing. Is there a way of setting this up in a better way? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple simple ideas, and especially if if we're just realistic that many of these states and cities aren't going to give up these programs completely, how do we make them more effective? One simple way is New Jersey offered, I believe it was 45 to 50 years of tax abatements. That's a crazy time horizon for two reasons. One, I mean, that's future politicians are going to be paying for this. Uh, But secondly, most analysis of firms' decisions is that they actually have pretty short time horizons, hmm. that their discount rate. So so what's the value of a tax break right. today 
is high. What's it tomorrow? Less, 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 less. These discount rates are so, so high that basically an abatement after five years is not really going to offer anything of value to the company at the time of the decision, meaning cap abatements or tax limitations, benefits for five years. Okay. And that's a simple, simple change that would dramatically reduce the cost of some of these programs. Right, right. It's interesting, too, because we talked about how politicians are not in office forever. Well, neither are CEOs, right? So they're probably not like, hmm, I wonder what our tax situation is going to be like in 30 years. You know, that's not their concern right now. It's probably like next quarter on Wall Street is much more their concern. Yeah, and, and this is the irony about these programs to some extent. You know, the thing that would be most valuable to these companies would be cash up front literally give us a cash grant. And, and a number of states <laughs> yeah. have what right. are called deal-closing funds. They do offer right. cash. Right. But the big dollar amount is often tax abatements because it's easier for politicians to give that. You don't have to get a budget allocation of money and hand it to the company. What you do is you just forgive their taxes. And in some ways, you don't even have to report how large these abatements are. Right. So the preferred political form of giving to firms is actually the least efficient um, in terms of swinging a firm decision. So I know it sounds odd, but if you're going to give an incentive, then give cash. Okay. And if you can't afford cash, you can't afford a tax abatement. <laughs> but the smartest one for the city, if people can swallow it politically, is give them cash. Give them, give, uh, ironically, give them cash. Yeah. Or give them something that's a value to the whole community. For example, workforce training. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a number of right. workforce training programs that, you know, even if the company leaves after five years, you've invested in your community workforce uh, in a way or, or some infrastructure. The problem is a lot of the infrastructure is often very much dedicated towards mm-hmm. the company, like you're literally building a road to the new company headquarters. But if you're expanding your power grid, you're expanding your highway system, you know, that may be an investment that's worthwhile independent of the company. So it's kind of a double benefit. That's the sort of thing that if the company wasn't there, would you be interested in investing in this? And, right. and if the answer is to yes, then that's a better than giving these tax abatements. Do you worry that the Amazon headquarters, uh, the second headquarters, marks the beginning of an arms race that's only going to get worse? I think Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, was quoted not that long ago saying, I want what Amazon's being offered, like for J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a good question. I mean, I think this public call that Amazon did, I'm not sure that they're happy with the outcome. I'm not sure it generated as much positive press hmm. um, as they, they had hoped. So um, Apple is looking for a fourth right. campus, mm-hmm. which is quite large. It does not look like they're doing this purely public call. Um, So I'm not sure that we're going to see too many other Amazon, but I do feel like the scale has, in some sense, desensitized us. Um, But I think that actually started with Foxconn. I mean, Foxconn, three, four, four and a half billion dollars for, I mean, to be honest, is kind of a glorified TV manufacturer. I mean, it's a lot of jobs, but it's not particularly high paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And to offer that size of incentive, I think that was actually more shocking to me than Amazon. Um, it's just the scale and, and that if communities are willing to give this amount up for manufacturing, it's hard to imagine what's going to be the next offer. When Amazon, when Apple looks for that fourth campus, what could they potentially get even without a public call for right, proposals? Right. Nathan Jensen is a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He's also a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. Nathan, thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. By the way, Jensen says that bids that cities have made for Amazon are frequently impossible for citizens to read. Often a third party or a party that's not fully public, like a chamber of commerce or a consulting firm, they have helped to craft the bid. And there are also sometimes special exemptions to record requests when it comes to economic development. We've got more about the most famous package of incentives delivered to a company over the past couple of years, the $7 million in grants and tax help that went to Carrier in Indiana. That's all at innovationhub.org. 